Hey, May 40 here. So I'm just th- thinking a lot about how important stories are to us. We really want stories to understand the world. And I think that's the reason why we're so united on the war against Ukraine, right? We're generally surprised by how united the West has become in standing up to Vladimir Putin. And I think the number one reason is that we share a common story. Russia bad by invading this sovereign country the, for the first time uh, since World War II, with the exception of that little bit of bother in the Balkans in the 1990s, we have one nation invading another nation. And so there's a universally shared story about this around the first world, that Russia is bad for invading Ukraine and the Ukrainians are plucky in fighting back. And so we've got this united way of understanding what's happening in Ukraine as opposed to COVID. So in 2019, prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic, you thought about which country is the best prepared for dealing with the pandemic. You'd say the United States. On paper, by, by all objective means, the United States seemed better prepared for a, for a pneumonia, influenza-type pandemic such as COVID than any other nation on Earth. But in the results, it turned out that we were about average for European-type nations. And we're still an incredibly divided country with regard to COVID because we don't have a commonly shared story with regard to COVID. We do have this commonly shared story with regard to the war in Ukraine. So when we share a story, we're able to unite. Think about the 1980 American hockey team gold medal victory. All right. I I remember how thrilling that was. I was, I was 13 years of age, 14 years of age when 13, when, when that was happening and I just remember the, the collective energy and the, the thrill and the excitement. This was good versus evil. Like, like our brains are programmed to prefer stories of good versus evil. Uh, we can objectively deny the existence of, of good and evil, but there's no way we can operate without, without belief in objective good and evil. It's, it's just how our brains are wired. Right? We can try to intellectualize no it. We can operate and we can try to say that, oh, it's all uh, subjective. It all depends on taking a leap of faith to some kind of you know, transcendent value system. But the way we're wired is certain things are wrong and certain things are right. right? This, is, this is like hardwired in us that uh, if someone steps on our toes, that uh, you know, we revolt. If there's disorder around us, if there's trash, if there's you know, dog poop on the sidewalk, if, uh, if we feel like uh, the community around us is spiraling into crime. We have certain, you know, hardwired impulses that this is bad. This is terrible. That the, the forces of disorder and evil are taking over. And so, biologically speaking, according to like biological political science, one of the things that unites people on the right is that we have a much stronger fear reflex. We have a much stronger reflex against threat. Right? We. We sense threats much more acutely and keenly than do people who are centrist or on the left. And so to be on the right means to put extra preparation for things going bad, for the world spiraling into chaos, for the potential to defend ourselves against aggression and conflict and disorder. That's something that characterizes people on the right. We don't have this positive view of human nature. We don't believe that people are basically good. So what unites people on the left is they believe people are basically good. What unites people on the right is that we have a skeptical view of human nature. And so we, we have this instinctive, fairly strong fear that the world 
is is constantly poised to descend into chaos that we'd never completely conquer chaos that chaos can overtake us at any time and so c.s lewis one of his arguments for god was that uh, we all have this inchoate desire for for god for for the for the north for for the trade Europe. Of course, the most urgent question is what precedents are being set now for the future? As Western leaders considered how to react, they repeatedly stated how surprised they were and suggested that Putin must not know that we are, after all, in the 21st century. He was acting in ways more fitting of past centuries. Such repeated observations are, are troubling because they suggest the comforting but false notion that ages or centuries have their own logic and spirit that must move toward peace. On the contrary, leaders and people set the agenda for an age, and there's no automatic default mode of peace to rely on in the absence of leadership. No natural law commands that the 21st century should usher in harmony. The European Union and the United States condemned the Putin regime's advances and imposed sanctions on trade with Russia, in some cases quite reluctantly. In spite of Ukrainian the requests, they did not deliver arms to help in defense. NATO was now on the front line of the confrontation, and Poland and the Baltic states in particular urged vigilance and action. NATO's concept of collective security is written into Article 5 of its charter, which states that an attack on one member would be considered an attack on all. In all of NATO's life to date, that promise has been invoked only once, after the 9-11 attacks on the United States. Would that promise hold in the future? How would so-called hybrid warfare, that is, infiltration... Okay, that's an excellent academic lecture, History of Eastern Europe, in particular the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Looking at the chat says, uh, Luke, we aren't united at all on Ukraine. Most of the liberal left in the U.S. and Western Europe support the Ukrainian state along with the neocon so-called right. No, pretty much everybody on the political spectrum, any major personality in American politics supports Ukraine and opposes what Vladimir Putin does. Who are Western political leaders who support Vladimir Putin right now? There aren't any. There's universal among everyone who matters in the West siding with Ukraine as the aggrieved party and condemning Vladimir Putin and Russia. Now, on, on dissident right, yeah, there are still a lot of people who have contempt for Ukraine and support Vladimir Putin, but they don't matter. They don't count for anything. They don't have any power and they don't have any influence. So as far as the Overton window, there's really only one, one permissible perspective on the Ukraine crisis. Russia is doing evil and Ukraine is the aggrieved party and is a plucky uh, country fighting for its survival against big bad Russia. That's that's universal perspective. Now, as opposed to our divided understanding of COVID, and uh, there's a terrific article here in The Atlantic, our brains want the story of the pandemic to be something that it isn't. After two years of living with the coronavirus, we're suffering from narrative fatigue. And so I've become increasingly aware of my own need for story and my own desire to slot things into good versus evil and accordingly become much more skeptical of some of my basic impulses. So I have basic free market right-wing impulses. Those are my impulses, but running into the reality of the COVID pandemic, it's, it's forced me to, to perspectives that are not congenial to me, such as there is tremendous need for government public policy, for public health policy, 
for government intervention and at times for even for government coercion, such as the closing off of borders and, and the denial of uh, travel. That these seem and, and shutdowns and lockdowns, these seemed to have been legitimate uh, uses of government power to deal with something as confounding as COVID pandemic. So those are ways that I've shifted out of my normal free market, uh, small government instincts. And I, I've been fairly cautious on COVID from the beginning. I haven't taken a lot of strong stands because it just seems so confounding. Uh, first of all, I read that poor Barry book on the 1918-1919 Spanish flu when about 40 million people around the world died from this influenza. So fairly early on in March of 2020, I had a sense that this was something that was a real public health threat and that extraordinary public health measures may be called for in dealing with it. Uh, Half Galician says, Angela Merkel's legacy is rightfully in the trash right now. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, talk about how Angela Merkel left uh, Germany unprepared for, for dealing with, with Russia. So, so where, did, where did she go wrong? So up to the final hours before Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, former, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been touted as the person favored by Germans to try to talk President Vladimir Putin out of the conflict. But as Russian bombs fell on Ukrainian cities, a shadow has fallen on Merkel's 16 years in office, with observers questioning if her detente policies with Putin had left Germany and Europe vulnerable. So once hailed as the leader of the free world, the veteran center-right leader has been accused of increasing Europe's reliance on Russian energy and neglecting Germany's defense in what appeared to be a devastating miscalculation of Putin's ambitions. So... Over the last decade, Germany's energy reliance on Russia has risen from 36% to 55%. So, yeah, that, that seems to have been a miscalculation. Seems to be a pretty big miscalculation. Also, uh, Germany's and, and Europe in general's increasing you know, preference to, to move on from fossil fuel, but the, the renewable energy sources just aren't there yet. And so shutting down of nuclear power in, in Germany and uh, in around the world, in Japan, also seems to have been a major mistake. So Angela Merkel's policies have left Germany helpless to follow allies like the United States and to impose an oil and gas embargo against Russia. Also, Germany's defense profile has been blunted by successive years of underinvestment, which has drawn the ire of the United States and other allies. Yeah, so I think those are two, two strong criticisms of Angela Merkel's policies. So she took power in 2005, and she just stepped down a few months ago. Rodney Martin says, nothing Germany could do in terms of defense can protect them. Well, if Germany doesn't do more for its defense, the United States will be less inclined to invest in defending Germany. So what, what Germany does has a big influence on how much the United States is likely to want to invest. Opposing the degenerate West should be the logical position for the distant right, or whatever one wants to call it. Okay, so if you oppose the degenerate West, then who do you support? Right? Which nation states, uh, which political ideologies that are in power uh, do you support? So it's not just you know, having a fantasy that you've got this ideology that's not in power anywhere in the world, but it'll be much, much better. That doesn't really count for much. You, you have a fantasy of about a, a political, social, cultural order, which is in 
nowhere in power throughout the world, right? That doesn't count for much. So if you think the, the West is so degenerate and bad, then where do you think it's better? In Nigeria, in North Korea, in, in China? Okay, I certainly think the West has its problems, but it, it's still still the most powerful part of the world. And uh, for, for all its degeneracy, that, that's kind of the, the downside of its protection of, of personal freedom. Afghalishan says, Germany just outsourced everything while pretending to be virtuous. They outsourced energy to Russia, defense to America, and handed over civil society to immigrant hordes from Syria. That's a pretty sharp critique there. Yeah, the country should now, in a sober moment, reappraise all of Angela Merkel's policies, including the own goal of allowing in 2 million refugees from the Middle East. And uh, Vihu says, I can't stop playing my video game. So, yeah, I was watching a, a good video the other day by this bloke on why, why he no longer plays video games. That uh, he was devoting so much time to achieving things in video games that it it diminished his excitement or interest in achieving things in, in the real world. So, let me find that way. I no longer play video games. So, I think certainly for many people, video games are, you know, are just, just fine. That they're, they're not a, a big, big problem. But uh, for, for many people, they do become a waste of time. Just like I'm sure there, there are some people who can, can use, you know, a, a small amount or a moderate amount of marijuana and it doesn't, uh, doesn't really hurt them. But yeah, I was kind of impressed by, by this video here. I'm not being when a, you're about a, to a lose your car. A level up in a video game doesn't mean anything when you have no idea where your dogs are going to live when you get kicked out. Are you going to put them back in the shelter? A new item in game that gives you more power doesn't mean anything when you're just wondering how you're going to buy food next week. None of what I did in the video games mattered at that point. All the confidence and all of that I'm a different person online and everyone enjoys me here. I couldn't take that into real life. Now I have to snap back into me. I'm this great player online, but in person I'm just... I gotta snap back to not being whatever I, I wanted to be. It's not like I could take my in-game gold and trade that in for a mortgage payment. Yes, I know technically you can sell gold, okay? I get it, people, in the comments. I could've tried to put out the fire and just get back into my routine of playing video games, working, working out, spending time with a girlfriend, going to sleep, rinse, repeat. All that over and over and over. Just put the fires out, just get back right into that traditional routine that I was in. But instead, I chose to pour gasoline on the fire and take it as an opportunity to try and create within myself all those traits that I had in my characters in the video games that I knew that I didn't have in real life. Talking to the camera being one of them, keeping my charisma up, filming in public, not caring what people think so much, building consistency of creating things in real life than building the consistency of logging into a video game. From that point on, I chose to make life the video game. If it didn't happen, I'd probably still be playing video games, trying to level up, or with my friends trying to figure out. Yeah, I think that's a pretty sharp analysis. Let's go to the chat. Rodney Martin says, Putin has killed George H.W. Bush's New World Order, which is a good thing. Well, I think that New World Order ended approximately 15 years ago with, with the rise of China. 
So you only had this new world order when we lived in a unipolar moment where the United States was the only powerful nation on earth. Half Galician says, everyone today pretends to know about John Mearsheimer. 40 was early on that. Yeah, so John Mearsheimer is getting millions of views, his videos on the Western Ukraine. And uh, he's getting, he says, a thousand emails a day. So I've been, been interested in Mearsheimer for approximately 15 years. Rodney Martin says, GOP neocons are frothing at the mouth to fight Russia. There's not much political energy for a no-fly zone or for direct military conflict with, with Russia. So anyone calling for that is very much on the political fringe. Uh, Interlocutor says, most of the nationalist right, with the exception of Colin Liddell and Richard Spencer, support Russia. Yeah, but none of them count for anything. Democrats want to fight Russia because they still believe Russia installed Trump. No, I think there's a universal revulsion against Russia uh, around the Western world. It's not just uh, Trump. Uh, Sid says Putin is winning. Well, is he winning? Just because you're pushing forward and taking territory doesn't mean you're winning if the cost of those uh, military advances are prohibitive, right? There are such things as Pyrrhic victories where it seems on the face of things that you, you have won, but the cost of winning has been so enormous that you're actually losing. So it didn't really matter in Operation Barbarossa and the battle for Moscow how close Germany's armies got to Russia. What mattered was what was their capability of not knocking the Soviet Union out of the war. And their capability of knocking the Soviet Union out of the war was not increased the closer they were getting to Moscow because they were stretching their supply lines while Soviet supply lines were getting shorter. And so the Soviets were stockpiling troops and weapons in Moscow and essentially allowing the Germans to come right up to the edge of Moscow. So at one point, uh, German uh, motorcycle units were about 25 miles from, from Moscow, but that doesn't mean that they were much closer to defeating the Soviet Union than when they were, say, 500 miles from, from Moscow. Uh, Germany lost Operation Barbarossa in the first three weeks because they were taking such enormous losses that after the first three weeks of the war, they could no longer operate Blitzkrieg. They, they could no longer operate you know, a broadly movement-based, panzer-based, tank-based attack force, that uh, they lost so many tanks and, and officers and, and equipment and their supply lines weren't working out that, uh, yeah, they, through you know, great effort, were able to keep extending into the Soviet Union, but the more they extended, the more vulnerable they became. Rodney Martin says, China matters and India matters. I don't think they actually matter that much anymore. You notice that over the past year or two, you don't hear nearly as much talk about how China's this great ascendant uh, power that's uh, going to take over world domination from the United States. India doesn't matter that much either. They're, uh, both, both China and India have per capita GMP like lower than Costa Rica. Putin's got China, Brazil, the Indians... Putin is winning. I don't think Putin is winning. And uh, just because you've got China, Brazil, and the Indians not joining in on embargoes against Russia doesn't mean that you're winning. Israel's not sanctioning Russia, also not a big deal. One good thing about the Ukraine war is that the anti-Semites are always saying no war for Israel can shut up now. Western Europe are U.S. vassals. Well, yeah, that's that's the deal that much of the world made during the Cold War 
that in exchange for protection from the United States, they would agree not to oppose U.S. foreign policy. So everything comes with a price, including American nuclear protection. Rodney doesn't want any Ukrainian refugees to the U.S. I don't think it's a bad thing that we feel much more connection to Ukrainians than we do from uh, people from the Middle East or from Africa because uh, Ukrainians share a similar European and Christian heritage to most people in the United States. We have soldiers in Poland, we have soldiers in Korea, we had them in Vietnam, we died defending those countries, but then they say no more wars to protect Israel. Yeah, we spend far more money and lives almost anywhere but Israel. Yeah, the amount of money spent on NATO and defending Taiwan and Korea is far more than spent on Israel. U.S. has not fought once for Israel. Merkel was a willing USA bitch. She relied on Big Daddy to protect Germany. At the same time, she was highly pragmatic, getting increasing amounts of energy from Russia. So if Merkel's Russia defense energy policy was trashed and self-injurious, what about her immigration policy? Good point. So I asked Interlocutor, who writes, opposing the degenerate West should be the logical position for the distant right. So what regimes, what political systems that have power in the world now would you want to emulate? Germany just outsourced everything while pretending to be virtuous. They outsourced energy to Russia, defense to America, and handed over civil society to immigrant hordes from the Middle East. Germany is not a sovereign nation. Well, Germany has some pretty big problems. They need American military protection. So Germany's in a demographics downward spiral. They're simply not reproducing. Interlocutor says, I support whatever opposes or contributes to the destruction of Western capitalism and liberalism. Okay, so what are better systems? So have you named any better systems that are currently in power as opposed to Western capitalism and liberalism? Rodney Martin says, Russia's not putting hairy men in little girls' bathrooms. Okay, but is that the, the be-all and end-all of, of public policy? Like, I think we've gone insane with our uh, transgender rights and transgender activism in the West, but that's not the only matter that decides the virtuousness or integrity or power of a society. So we have these 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 ads, right, for for China and Russia and and for the U.S. and uh, and the like China and Russia they look really tough, right? But uh, does that really matter? Is that the most important thing about an armed forces that it puts out ads that are really tough? So the U.S. has put out some ridiculous ads for its military forces saying how you know, transgender-friendly, gay-friendly they are, and uh, these ads may not necessarily inspire much confidence in the United States military being tough. But uh, yeah, the, the China and, and the Russia ads for their militaries make these countries seem a lot tougher, but is that what's most important? I mean, are ads really the best way to assess how powerful a military force is? So judging by all of Russia's problems invading Ukraine, right? You wouldn't, how many people w would you have found that, that thought that Russia would be in as much trouble as it's in, that has made as little progress, hasn't even taken Kiev yet, right? It was pretty much unanimously 
uh, predicted by military experts that you know Russia would just trash the Ukrainian military very quickly. Now, people pointed out that Russia would not be able to occupy the Ukraine, and that's not really a goal I would expect for Vladimir Putin. He just wants a a friendly friendly power that uh, friendly regime that has power in Ukraine, but Russia does not want to occupy this country. They, they simply don't have the, the military resources. All right, let's get a little bit from Michael Beckley. I mean, that obviously is going to take a short-term hit on the Chinese economy, but I don't think that's necessarily problematic in the long term. My sense is also that Xi Jinping is keeping that in place for now, in part because he has this big party congress coming up in October where he's going to exceed for the first time, his unofficial sort of term limits. You know, there had been this kind of norm established that Chinese leaders step down after 10 years or so. And no one expects Xi Jinping to step down. But I think it's I think he understands that it's 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 significant that he will be actually staying on beyond that um, after October. And so is paving the way to make sure there there aren't sites of opposition. And so locking down um, through a zero COVID policy is is helpful for that. And at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of reports that suggest the Chinese vaccine has not been terribly um, effective. And so something, you know, that... Aha, so Interlocutor admits <laughs> there are no preferable alternatives presently in power. So, so what is my point? My point is that you live in fantasy land, right? You decry Western liberalism and Western capitalism, but there are no better alternatives right now. You want to live in a fantasy world, which is fine, but it's not part of a realistic discussion of what's going on in the world today. You're engaged in mo massive masturbation. Like, oh, if only we could have this kind of, oh, this would be great if we were really strong and united and we had a really strong leader. Oh, yeah. All right. Th that's what you're into. You're into masturbation. I'm talking about reality. So uh, I, I can't condemn you for wanting to live in a masturbatory fantasy but that's not what this show is all about. There, there are a lot of shows where you can talk about your masturbatory fantasies. Uh, this isn't one of them. Rodney Martin says, USA couldn't pacify Afghanistan in 20 years. Well, it uh, didn't exactly put all of its resources into pacifying Afghanistan. Afghanistan fairly quickly proved itself to be, to be a loser and unworthy of US resources. Ukraine has modern weapons and training. Afghanistan did not. Russia has done far better in Ukraine than the U.S. could have. I, I don't think that's realistic. Uh, American military power is just so many leagues superior to what the Russians are able to assemble. Interlocutor says, my point is your system is destroying us. Okay, as opposed to which system? You can't name any realistic systems. So you're only systems that you endorse are masturbatory fantasies. Ah, there are alternatives within our own political and cultural traditions. In America, there is a populist and anti-interventionist tradition. Yeah, and it's still there, and it has considerable problems. Like, uh, the, the populist position with regard to COVID was insane, that we didn't need lockdowns, we didn't need vaccines, right? So uh, there are times when I side with populism versus the elite opinion, but there are plenty of times when populism is just moronic. In Beverly Hills and Manhattan, only wives of rich men are against, against gorgeous, blonde, poor Ukrainian babes coming here. Culture and morals determine the worth of a society. Well, what determines the worth of a society is just 
you know, it's just purely uh, subjective. But what determines the danger of a society is its ability to mount war. And uh, no, no other, all the other countries in the world don't have the equivalent of the U.S. Armed Forces. Like all the other countries in the world put together don't spend as much money as the United States does on its armed forces. Yeah, every man in America wants more beautiful Ukrainian women admitted to the country. Right? We have a lot more in common with Ukrainians than we do with Syrians or Somalis. Crime became unbearable the minute Luke landed in Sydney. When he got back to L.A., the crime was merely sensationalism. <laughs> well, it was... There's one thing to know something in an abstract fashion. It's something else to experience it in real life. So Sydney is one of the world's uh, safest cities. It's, according to one survey, the fourth safest big city in the world. And so experiencing how wonderful that was, uh, was, was a visceral, existential, overwhelming experience. Wow. Wow. It was just incredible and then and then to compare that with what was going on in los angeles i've lived in los angeles since 1994 and i became desensitized to to the rising crime rates now i still think uh that a lot of you know the fox news and conservative approach that that la is a hellhole and california is a hellhole because of rising crime rates i think that is sensationalized and overdone but there is a very real uh, rise in crime in California and other parts of the United States. It's a real problem. It is something short of a catastrophe. So LA and San Francisco and the Bay Area are not hell holes, but we're certainly facing you know, considerably decreased quality of life due to the rise in crime. And then when you go visit a place like Australia where there's comparatively virtually no crime, it just makes it so much more viscerally compelling you know, what, what crime does to our quality of life in America. Luke was bashing America in Sydney. Now he is back USA, USA. Well, everywhere you go, you, you change. I've just been reading this terrific book. It's called The Extended Mind. And it's about how important things outside of our brain are for our thinking. It was named a top 10 book by the New York Times. And, uh, just it makes the point how important the place we are at is for our thinking so walls all right i'm speaking in a, in a walled room right now that allows much more freedom of thought than if i was living in a situation where everybody was able to observe my every act and deed uh, you think different thoughts when you go for a walk than when you're just sitting down so nietzsche said don't don't trust any any thought that you don't develop while walking and uh, the power of gesture gesture helps us to communicate more clearly and to think more clearly so the extended mind by uh, i think any murphy terrific terrific uh, new book and so the power of place yeah when i'm in sydney that profoundly affects how i understand the world when i'm in los angeles that profoundly affects how i view the world when i when i'm out for a walk that that profoundly affects how i view the world when i'm sitting alone or when I'm with other people at Kiddish. Welcome to the Michael Shermer Show. I'm your host, Michael Shermer. Before I introduce today's guest, the written version. So let's just start there. Why is that? 
Hmm. Well, I have a question for you, Michael, which is when you think about those quotes from those books that you've listened to, do you remember where you were when you yes. were listening? Oh, to yeah. It? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This this no, is the link to, to yeah. the extended mind idea. I can even picture like I, I'm usually doing this on a bike ride or a hike with my dog, usually long bike rides. So I can remember like what canyon road I was riding up when I heard this story about some story you told in your book. Yeah. So I can actually picture it physically where I was. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple things going on there. One is that, as you mentioned, you're moving when you're listening to these audiobooks. It sounds like you're taking a walk, you're taking a bike ride and movement enhances our thinking processes in ways that remain dormant when we're just sitting still, as we usually are when we're reading a print book. And then we also have this um, navigational built in kind of navigational system that marks where we are when we encounter important information. And you can understand the evolutionary value of a system like that. You, When you encounter you know, a, a source of food or a source of, of danger and threat, it's good to remember where that was so that you know to go to that place again or avoid it. And so um, it's so interesting to me how we limit the use of our own inbuilt sort of human resources, biological resources, when we remain still when we do our thinking and yet remaining still while we think is kind of the way our culture thinks thinking should happen. Yes. Really and, and, and in reading the books, I can often remember where on the page it was. Like I'm trying to remember where that quote was I wanted to use. And, Oh, it was on the bottom left of the page and so middle of right. the book, you know, I kind of kind of a physical environment of the, of the quotes. And uh, let's go back to the chat. Half Galician says, wow, too much of a hobby can be malproductive. Who would have thought? Well, for some people, it's a real problem. It's not a problem that Half Galician apparently has, but there may be other parts of his life where he's engaging too much in something that is a problem. So that you don't personally have the problem with gaming doesn't mean it's not an important issue. And spending a great deal of time in, in fantasy and in in recreational activities when we should be concentrating on our, our real life is, is a real problem for tens of millions of people. It's a real problem for tens of millions of Americans, even if you, half Galician, don't have that problem. And uh, sometimes we need to hear something from different people in different words to get through our layers of self-protection. We all have stories. We're always the hero of our own story. We don't want to feel like we have a problem. We have an instinct that we want to blame our problems on someone else. And so if we get fired from a job or we get fired from a relationship, right, it, it's usually too painful for us to say that the problem's with us. Instead, we'll spend weeks saying the problem's with the, the boss or with the, the person who got rid of us from, from the relationship. And that's a normal self-protective device. But if we keep that up for months, or, or years, that's obviously maladaptive. So a lot of things are adaptive to a certain extent in the short term, but then they become maladaptive. And so living in a fantasy world, playing video games, blaming other people for our problems, that's a perfectly adaptive response for a, a limited amount of time. But then if you extend it past a few weeks or a month or two months, or depending on the length of the relationship, uh, past, say, three months, then it becomes maladaptive. And so we all build up these stories that uh, our problems are other people's fault. And so we often need to hear from different people and different words and different perspectives to kind of break through 
our shell of of self-protection that you know we're the heroes of our own stories and uh, our problems are the fault of everyone else rather than ourselves Rodney Martin says the counter effect of Biden and the West Russian sanctions is destroying Western economies well it's not going to destroy the American economy but I'll have some negative effect with the rising gas prices but the US depends less on trade than any other major power US military is a joke now can't take any losses US military is the most formidable fighting force on earth Luke playing TEDx tier nourish kite well just because it's on TED doesn't mean it's wrong or stupid so sometimes we need to hear banal truths we get so distracted by everything else going on in our life, sometimes we need to be reminded of banal truths. U.S. imperialism only targets weak nations that can't defend themselves. Says interlocutor, the West fights Russia and China covertly more than anything else. U.S. troops will not be in direct combat with Russians. Well, the U.S. fights for international interests, and so we've certainly targeted uh, China. We have applied considerable tariffs and, and regulations, and uh, we're squeezing, squeezing China like a python. I don't expect that China will exist as a nation state in its present form in 10 years. Mainstream media has become a propaganda organ grinder for neocons and chicken hawks, says Rodney Martin. Well, I, I am surprised by how universally the Russia-Ukraine war is being viewed all around the first world. Luke is the greatest intellectual popularizer in America today. Carl Schmidt, John Mearsheimer, Mark Shapiro. Yeah, what's, what's exactly the prohibitive cost of the sanctions against Russia to the United States? Putin knew it would be a mess in the Ukraine and that there would be retaliatory sanctions by the U.S. and its satellites. Right, so right now it doesn't appear as though Putin made the right move in invading Ukraine, and I'm talking just purely in terms of Russian national interests. Putin is not the great savior, but you guys underestimate him. Well, I don't know who underestimates him. I think I've pretty consistently said for years that Putin is the most effective great power leader in the world in the last 20 years. I can't think of any other leader of a great power in the last 20 years who has been as effective in promoting his nation's best interests as much as Putin. Now, I think he may have blundered in the Ukraine. Galician knows Blitzkrieg is built on quick first strike movements. It just doesn't work beyond the short term with an industrial giant like the Soviet Union who can resupply with millions and millions of men. China services trillions in U.S. debt. Not true. Right? Uh, Japan services more U.S. debt than China, I believe. And anyway, either way, China and Japan are not terribly significant for servicing U.S. debt. U.S. is finished as a superpower. Not true. U.S. is... Over, the overwhelming power in the world today and it will only go become more powerful compared to other nations in the years ahead Luke Ford thinks the USA is winning pretty easily, yes, compared to other great power nations, China and Russia the other two great powers are a mess Okay, let's play a little bit more. This is a terrific book, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. It's just words. Yes. But... Yes. And I think that's why reading on the internet or even reading 
a, on a Kindle can be a rather disorienting experience because we have none of those physical cues, you know, like, oh, it was at the beginning of the book. So most of the pages were still, you know, to the right or whatever that those kinds of embodied experiences we have when reading a print book are missing when we read online. And I think that's why it all starts to <laughs> blend together and seem like this sort of miasma of information. Yeah, I don't do ebooks. Uh, I just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with them. I just can't, uh, I just can't get into it. Also, I can't listen to a fiction like a novel when I'm, you know, out on a bike ride or whatever, because my mind kind of, uh, uh, you know, just spaces out for a few seconds or a minute. And with a nonfiction book, you can kind of come back in because there are chunks of ideas being presented sequentially, and I can kind of fill in the blanks that I spaced out on. But with a novel, I can't follow the thread of the of the plot line or the character development yeah pretty similar experiences there to uh michael Shermer. looking at the chat interlocutor says you couldn't be more wrong luke whatever the state of china or russia the u.s is rapidly falling apart will eventually become a squalid north american version of brazil or guatemala so one of us will be proven right i've uh, made made my my argument that the u.s will grow increasingly strong in the years ahead i primarily read ebooks I prefer ebooks to real life uh, paper books. Elliot says, "Is there any validity to the idea that China and Russia will make common cause against America?" Yeah, well, China and Russia have have a common cause against America, but they're not a particularly powerful combo. I, I don't exactly know, you know, what what are the scary things that they can do together that they couldn't do separately. The interests of our ruling elites and those of the average American are hardly synonymous. That's true, and that is a problem in the United States. Our ruling elites in the U.S. don't fight for national interests, but only for their financial and corporate interests. The United States is a global empire, not a normal nation state. I would modify that to say our ruling elites sometimes don't fight for national interests. So I don't think either our ruling elites or the, the regular folks, the populace, uh, more virtuous like sometimes i think one group is right and uh, sometimes one group is wrong but yeah i read most of my books as ebooks baristas and financial analysts can't sustain a superpower well the world's most powerful economy and the world's most powerful military yeah they can sustain a superpower when I space out like that. So I, I, I thought that was always interesting as interesting. well. Yeah. Well, it is the case that moving our bodies consumes some mental bandwidth, you know? So I have a tell an anecdote in the, in the book about the psychologist Daniel Kahneman and how he worked out a precise speed at which he could walk and think well at the, and, and found that that sort of moderate kind of intensity of exercise did enhance his thinking, but, once he started to go faster than that, all thoughts kind of fled his mind. He was really focusing so much on navigating the terrain and he could no longer. Yeah, I think if you go over about, I think for the average person, five, six, seven, eight miles an hour, you'll no longer be able to think productively. But if you can walk probably uh, six miles an hour, I think uh, most people can still think productively. So what, uh, what stimulated my, my stream Today is this article in The Atlantic about uh, our frustration with COVID. Our brains want the story of the pandemic to be something it isn't. So I think 
frequently our brains want reality to be something that is not and true with ukraine versus russia right good foreign policy should not be decided by our passions and so it seems almost universally in the west our passions are on the side of ukraine but that doesn't mean that we should be committing troops or committing a no-fly zone to to ukraine right when it comes to foreign policy and uh, public policy in general we can't be primarily directed by our emotions so if the COVID pandemic were a movie, it would not make any sense, right? This is a great point. We have brains that want to storify everything. We want to put everything into stories, usually right and wrong, good and evil, good guys and bad guys, right? So even if we put aside the suffering and the monotony that would make up the film's action, the narrative structure of COVID, defined by its false endings, exhausting duration, and inscrutable villains, a virus would be unwatchable. So two years of living with the coronavirus has been spirit depleting. But this weariness has been compounded by the fact the pandemic has defied our attempts to snap it into a satisfying story framework. That's why I've been so milk toast on public responses to COVID, generally speaking, because I don't think I've seen this particularly in, in dramatic good guy versus bad guy terms. So I think many of us are su suffering from narrative fatigue. But we've got an exhaustion born not only out of the relentlessness of the pandemic, but the relentlessness of the ever-changing narratives that have accompanied it. So that the coronavirus's volatile arc has thwarted a basic human impulse to storify reality. We instinctively try to make sense of events in the world and in our own lives by mapping them onto a narrative. And when we struggle to do that, there are all these unpleasant consequences, stress, anxiety, depression, a sense of fatalism, and just feeling kind of crummy. So it often serves us to storify our life and the world around us, even if that story is false, right? There are all sorts of false beliefs that have beneficial effects on us because when we can't make a story about what's going on in our life or in the world around us, then we feel experienced increased stress, anxiety, depression, fatalism, and just lousy. So particularly deflating stretch of the pandemic story came in 2021 after the vaccines were made widely available. So they were initially pitched as a salvation. And President Joe Biden celebrated independence from the virus in a 4th of July speech in a hot vac summer, something that people talked about, white boy summer 2021. The Delta variant then came along, eviscerated that optimism, produced a feeling of narrative whiplash. Wasn't the COVID story supposed to be over, or at least in an intermission? What's made the pandemic story even more exasperating is that Americans haven't been able to agree on its basic facts Many people have been asserting the pandemic's a hoax, the vaccines are harmful, and our divergent beliefs about COVID and public policy with regard to COVID destroy our ability to tell a collective story. So during World War II, a national narrative was easy to construct. And with regard to Russia versus Ukraine, we in the West have uh, pretty much universally constructed a narrative, Russia bad, Ukraine good. But uh, with regard to COVID, we can't construct a narrative. So the story will usually be more psychologically satisfying when it has a diabolical antagonist to root against, whether it's Dr. Fauci or Donald Trump. But the pandemic has denied us that because the virus is not willful, it does not have motives. So we're resorting to casting a different enemy, such as Donald Trump, Fauci, China. So we have a vacuum of villainy, which is contributing to pandemic conspiracy theories which are basically just convenient stories about whom to be mad at. So we crave storylines.
We've got Disney cranking out so many iterations of storylines of battles between good and evil in which good triumphs and evil renounces its ways. But without a sentient enemy in COVID, we can't do the normal thing that we do when someone from another political party does something we dislike, which is to vilify them. So our fight is to get them to recognize their evil and then to give it up. So when you want reality to match a storyline that you are accustomed to, but the reality doesn't comply, that is stressful. We have this strong desire for redemptive narratives, stories that go from bad to good. I remember when I was watching the movie uh, The Pianist, I think it was Roman Polanski movie set during World War II. One of my frustrations with the movie was that the protagonist didn't really change. (coughs) He had this intense two-hour movie, but at at the end, how was the protagonist, Adrian Brody, how was he any different than at the beginning of the film? So in sermons and commencement speeches in national myths, We constantly hear tales of triumphing over adversity, but the pandemic story has withheld that positive resolution and refused to end. So this narrative rupture helps explain why Delta's emergence particularly stung. It punctured the happy ending that people have come to expect and that seemed for a moment to be within our grasp. Mole problems in his head as he was trying to walk too fast. Yes, and I remember that story because I was on a walk to the mailboxes. I live up in the mountains. It's about a mile walk to my mailboxes with my dog. And I remember thinking, because it takes me like 20 minutes to get to the mailbox, one mile. It's, it's mostly climbing. And he was doing like, what did you say, 15 minutes or 16 minutes for a mile? I thought, damn, that guy's 88 years old and he's beating me? <laughs> so there's a, another funny thing there, yeah. Yeah, so that's true because... Um, what I'm talking about here is only when I'm by myself. If I, when I meet the guys for a ride and we go pretty fast, I can't listen to anything, uh, it, you know, because it's just too, you know it's too too much concentrating on actually working working out something like that. But I do find the the entire idea pretty uh, pretty useful these days under the pandemic. We're all consuming content digitally now, often on you know online alone. And uh, but that has some trade offs, too, as you point out that, you know, but learning by yourself is not as good as in a, in a classroom. So I, 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 I'm guessing you would make the argument that we still need brick and mortar buildings for universities and colleges, particularly seminar type uh, classes that in other words, the university is not dead. We're all going to Zoom and, and just consuming uh, university courses, no. you know, alone in our in our bedrooms. Yeah, no, I, I hope I hope the pandemic killed off that idea because we all saw how very impoverished of an experience that is to to do all your learning on Zoom. There's so much that's that gets missed. For one thing, terrific book, The Extended Mind: The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain, by journalist Annie Murphy Paul. So, here's a good thread on Twitter by Dmitry Alexander Symes. A journalist who focuses on Russia and Asia. So he says, I just read this New Yorker interview with Princeton historian Stephen Kotkin. Kotkin makes some bizarre claims about Russian history which should be addressed. So Stephen Kotkin tells the New Yorker, I have only the greatest respect for the realists George Cannon and John Mearsheimer, but I respectfully disagree. The problem with their argument is that it assumes that had NATO not expanded, Russia wouldn't be the same or very likely close to what it is today. And here's the key thing that that I've evolved to in my thinking over the past two years. There's no essential self because who we are depends on the context in which we're operating. It depends on who we're talking to. So there's no essential Russia, just like there's no essential America or no essential China or no essential Judaism or no essential Christianity. Christianity, Judaism, America, China, 
they all depend upon context. So there's no essential Russia that just hates the West. This is Stephen Cochran writing that. What we have today in Russia is not a surprise. It's not some kind of deviation from historical pattern. Way before NATO existed in the 19th century, Russia looked like this. It had an autocrat. It had repression. It had militarism. It had suspicion of foreigners in the West. This is a Russia that we know, and it's not a Russia that arrived yesterday or in the 19th century. It's not a response to the actions of the West. There are internal processes in Russia that account for where we are today. Well, internal processes in Russia or in me or in you or in Christianity or in Judaism depend upon the context, the situation, what they're reacting to. All right? So in some circumstances, Russians will hate the West. In other circumstances, Russians will love the West. In some circumstances, people in the West will love Russia. In other circumstances, people in the West will hate Russia. some circumstances, Christians will have an instinctive loathing of Jews. In other circumstances, they'll have an instinctive love of Jews. It depends on the context. It's not an essential Christianity. There's not an essential Judaism. There's not an essential Russia that just hates the West. Right. So, Dmitry writes, let's begin with the suspicion of Westerners part. This claim doesn't hold up scrutiny for the Russian Empire, which was modeled by Peter I on European absolute monarchy. So post-Peter the Great, Russian monarchs spoke numerous European languages and had European relatives. Same applied to members of the Russian aristocracy, were often taught by European teachers in their youth who later traveled across Europe. 19th century educated Russians were fully plugged into European political and cultural trends. During the Napoleonic Wars, officers from all across Europe served in the Imperial Russian Army. So Peter I modeled the Russian Empire after the West. His successors maintained close familial and cultural ties to Europe. The Russian elite was very much westernized. Westerners occupied high government military positions in the Russian Empire. So Kotkin's point is that Russia has always been paranoid about the West, but that doesn't withstand the least bit of scrutiny. What about his claim that Russia has always been a militarized autocracy? Well, in some circumstances it has been, and in other circumstances it has not been. Depends on the circumstance, the situation. Plenty of European states were militarized autocracies during the 17th and 18th century. Think of Prussia under Frederick the Great, France under Louis XIV, or Sweden under Charles XII. So with the exception of the 1850s, the percentage of Russians serving in the army was comparable to that of other European great powers. So the argument that Russia was just uniquely militarized is not correct. What about Stephen Cockin's idea that Russians have always been a personalist despotism and his argument the Russians have always been driven by a sense of exceptionalism. So this is Stephen Cochran here speaking to the New Yorker. The worst part of this dynamic in Russian history is the conflation of the Russian state with the personal ruler. Instead of getting the strong state that they want to manage the Gulf for the West, push and force Russia up to the highest level, they instead get a personalist regime. They get a dictatorship, which usually becomes a despotism. They've been in this bind for a while because they cannot relinquish that sense of exceptionalism, that aspiration to be the greatest power but they cannot match that in reality. Eurasia is just much weaker than the Anglo-American model of power. Iran, Russia, and China with similar models are all trying to catch the West, trying to manage the West. So it, it's weird to condemn Russians for a sense of exceptionalism, right? Every people in the world see themselves as exceptional. And what about the uniquely autocratic repressive claim? So Peter I modeled the Russian Empire after fellow European absolute monarchies. So Politically, Russia was pretty much in the norm, at least in the 18th century. We start seeing some divergence in the 19th century, since whereas many European monarchies embrace some form of parliamentarianism, Russia holds on to the absolute monarchy model. But there are many important nuances. Even though Russia was an absolute monarchy, it was also a society that had an aristocratic class with established legal and historical rights and privileges. 
The Tsar could not just bulldoze and purge them the way Stalin did with his high-ranking officials. So Tsarist Russia had much more freedom of expression than the Soviet Union. Although Russia was slow to embrace constitutional reform, it adopted various other political, social, economic reforms throughout the 19th century. The Tsar Alexander II abolished serfdom, introduced elected judges, experimented with local self-government. His son Alexander III rolled back some of these political reforms while industrializing Russia's economy. By the full range of people's gestures um, get lost when you're when you're on Zoom. The sense of social pre what psychologists call social presence, you know, that energizing alertness that we feel in the presence of another person. Those things just don't um, they don't come across in the same way in uh, in Zoom. Yeah, especially if you have a conversation. I tried this when the when the university's Chapman University closed down in early March of 2020. And, you know, that was it. We, we, we went to Zoom and I was teaching a small seminar, just 25 students. And, you know, conversation kind of ricochet around the room sort of randomly. And you, you kind of look for social cues. And on Zoom, you just have to, you know, you put the little your flag up like I putting my hand up. And it's like this is just totally not even remotely as good. No, no. So I'm I'm really glad that universities and, you know, K-12 schools are largely returning to in-person instruction this year. I think it's really important for people to learn and think and work together in, in person in the same place at the same time. Yeah, one other funny little anecdote I thought reading your book was the first course I ever had in college was an astronomy course. And uh, this is what got me interested in the sciences in the first place. But I remember the, when the professor... Okay, let's go to Elliot Blatt. What's going on, bro? Yo, bro. How you doing? Good, man. Blessings. Blessings. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're streaming again. It took a long little hiatus. Yeah, it, that, took, it took a week off. Was that for uh, Purim? Or no, it was just I just didn't have anything to say. I, I, I was reading, like I read probably four books in that time. And I, I was reading the, the the newspapers every day, but I just never felt like I had anything that I wanted to tell anyone else. So you just you just remained quiet. I did. So, just took yeah, a, did you, eight you, days you off. This is like some sort of progress, spiritual progress of sorts. Or? No, it's neither way. I don't change. think it's inherently good or bad. It's just uh, if I don't think I have something to contribute or add, then then yeah, I think it's good to just. Take take a break. I don't want to stream compulsively, just like I don't want to do you know a lot of things compulsively. So we can't we can't uh, you know in the old days we could just predict uh, you know we that's three o'clock Luke, Luke will be out. yes that's right for for years for for three years or so. Now it's going to be sort of like a like a special treat that descends from heaven. <laughs> it it's all situational, right? It, it all depends on. Uh, you know what's going on like it takes a lot of energy to do a live stream like this so in certain situations i'm going to have more energy and more incentive to stream than others yeah yeah okay we'll have to adapt just like just like ukrainians right <laughs> have to adapt to the new reality i don't really have much to say luke i've been uh you know uh uh, trying to, you know, weave my way through the information fog that's accompanying this. 
So what do you think is, from your perspective and your life experience, what is a life that works? A life that works? Yeah. Is, um, <clears throat> life that works is a simple life. It's a life that is unencumbered by um, meaningless annoyances. It is a life that is quiet, calm, and introspective. And... And Am I actualizing uh, this life? No, yeah. how often have you made that real? Um, <clears throat> there's, I had a few good years, Luke, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but not so much anymore. So my definition of a life that works is that you look forward to tomorrow and, and that when you get up in the morning, you have a sense of anticipation for the day, that there are, there are things in your day that you're looking forward to. Uh, I would say that's half true of me. Yeah, uh, it's a good definition. I like the definition. It, it's uh, so simple, right? It's, so, it's simple. so simple. It's so crisp and simple. It's crisp and clean. It's no no bullshit. No 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 ratty ends. No no um, no nonsense. Like, yeah, I'm with you. So, like, I'm usually ex excited when I wake up in the morning. After I take that cold shower, I mean that really <laughs> wakes me up, and it, like I'm excited to oh there there are these you know YouTube videos that I want to listen to, there's this book I want to read, uh, there's this work assignment that I want to dive into, there's this social engagement that I want to participate in, there's this uh, walk I want to take, there's this movie I want to watch, so I have all these things that I'm looking forward to doing, and so as long as I have that, I feel like my life works. On the other hand, there there are times when I I'm just feeling dull. Like you just I want just to curl up in a ball and inject heroin directly into your veins. Well, not quite that, but I, I keep doing things and I don't last at any of them for like longer than twenty minutes. So I'll try journaling and I'll give up on that after fifteen minutes, and then um, say I'll pick up a, a twelve step book uh, and and try to answer questions in the in that book, and then give up on that after fifteen minutes, and then. I'll start watching a movie and give up on that after 20 minutes. So I do sometimes have those restless times where nothing sustains my attention. Huh. Um, now, are you, are you, do you find that you're more disciplined lately? Oh, I feel good. I feel good lately. So... Yeah. Uh, when, when I take a, if I like a lose a friend, which hasn't happened for years, but, uh, that's dispiriting. Well, yeah, no, I, I lost, I lost, uh, Godwood. So what about two years now I've had, you know, virtually no relationship with Casey. So that, that's a loss of a friend. That was, yeah, that, that made, that made me feel sad. Uh, I haven't had much interaction with Dennis Dale over the past three years that that makes me sad uh but these are these are virtual relationships i've never met either of them in real life so i i can't think of losing any real life friends in the in the past few years but if i was to lose a real life friend that would be that'd be really painful or lose lose a gig or lose you know some you know opportunity that i was relying on for for income and then then you know get snatched away that you know that that shakes me up. You know, I just got off the phone 
with a friend we had like a two-hour chat which is very rare for me to have like a long conversation with anybody for that except you Luke. <laughs> 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 but having a long conversation with a friend i mean like multiple hour conversation with a friend it's been a long time yeah and uh it was a very nice chat um then I looked at the clock, you know, I woke up with this, this feeling of, uh, you know, just crushed by the amount of work I had to accomplish today, you know, and um, really, you know, I'd had some sort of self-imposed goals for myself for today. And this uh, call with a friend, it was scheduled like a business meeting, you know, it was scheduled. So I said, oh, I have that to do. And uh, <clears throat> So we had our little chat. It was enjoyable and so forth. And you started streaming in between it. And uh, uh, so I'm just like, oh, my God, that was fun. But I really feeling the loss of those two hours now. I feel like I've yeah, a valuable resource that I had allocated for one thing is had been now allocated for something else. And like... I just don't know how life became like this, where I had to sort of uh, lament the loss of two hours as if they were, you know, a precious commodity. Particularly on a Sunday, I assume you're talking about today. It is today, yeah. yeah. Right. So, And because I've been falling behind on some work, mm -hmm. I sort of set, set the day aside yeah. for catching up. And now because I had that call, you know, I'm going to be significantly less caught up than I had hoped to be which is going to occasion a whole new week of stress, you know, for me, both trying to keep current and to catch up. And this is the treadmill phenomena that invariably I always seem to find myself in. And so I've been observing that phenomenon and wondering what it is that I've been doing that gets me into these situations because I, I do hate them. Right. You, you have less energy now and less enthusiasm than before that two-hour call, I assume. Well, right. And bear in mind, I did enjoy the call. I'm glad I yeah. had it. But, like, uh, now I have to sort of – and so I, I was going to dive back into work, but then I saw you'd sent the link, and then I'm like, oh, well, maybe I can, I can have, like, a transitional call, a transition. Right. <laughs> Out of social mode into back to business mode. And, um uh i don't know just a sort of you know i'm just ruminating on the no, i, I have that life. too because i my natural tendency is to have less social interaction than is good for me so i have to kind of push myself beyond what's comes naturally to me but then i often think after a social interaction or after a phone call you know am i better for that like am i happier for that am i more energized for that and sometimes yes sometimes no so I try to limit those social engagements and phone calls that don't don't add energy to my life. So yeah, if the call had been really unpleasant and just sort of a you know a performa perfunctory thing that I I did just out of obligation, I would have been ranting and raving and raging right now because not only did I not enjoy the time, but I also lost the time. So it would be like a double negative. Uh, but at least this had the redeeming feature of being a pleasant phone call. Um, but, uh, you know, I found over the years that I just have to sort of pair off to, to snip off all of these frills, these little um, time-wasting um, 
indulgences that I used to have, I, I used to, now I can no longer do them. Uh, I, I do feel like I, the world just is going faster than I want it to. So what things in your life consistently give you energy, inspiration, enthusiasm? Um, just being outside in fresh air and sunshine. Yes. Yeah, you know, that's about all I need. And even it just seems like more often that's being deprived, uh, being taken from me. It's like I know I don't really want any external stuff. I just want yes, I left alone. <laughs> I'm reading this book, The Extended Mind, and it starts with a quote from Nietzsche, who says, "Don't trust any thought that doesn't come to you when you're walking." Uh, oh, that's a great quote. Yeah, um, then it quotes all sorts of philosophers talking about the importance of of movement for thinking. Oh yeah, and um, you know, I was since it's, I was talking about with this with the this this previous call that the solution is always to simplify. It's always to simplify. This was the conclusion we reached that you just need to take things out. You need to return to the basics. You need to turn, turn, turn around. You need to put your feet back on the ground. <laughs> is, is that quote ringing a bell for you? Yeah. Uh, you think you can pull that up? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll play, some, play some of that in the, in the background. I love that. <laughs> um, so. At 20. I, I, heard, uh, I heard an allegation that... Uh, there's no romantic way to fist somebody. Do you, do you think that's really true? <laughs> uh, I think that's true. That's true. <laughs> After deep reflection, which I, I pondered this question for many, many days. <sighs> so that was a bit of a left field thing. Well, I was just thinking you might need some more energy and enthusiasm, and I find there's nothing like a little fisting that gets me going. But on the other hand, I got to admit it's not the most romantic thing. Yeah, it's kind of on par with cottaging in the Donbass. <laughs> no, it's 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 much better. It's more it's better than cottaging in the Donbass. But uh, yeah, how, how do you think the cottaging culture in Ukraine is holding up? I haven't haven't really thought about it, but how, how are you enjoying this war? Is it giving you some excitement and meaning and purpose to life? Um, it's definitely something to think about. Enjoying is not a word I would use. Okay. Um, I um, I've been sort of observing. Uh, well, uh, let me take a little brief digression. Uh, Kotkin, that I saw one of his interviews. And uh, he seemed to be saying, he seemed to have bought the whole Russians have the election narrative, which made me think less of him. Yeah, or, I mean, that is bizarre to, to think yeah. that was a significant part of the 1996 election. Yeah, and like I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, other than that, he seemed to be... Uh, Okay, I don't feel this intense loyalty to Ukraine the way a lot of people are feeling it. And, you know, I, I, I'm just completely neutral on it. I, I, I don't think about Ukraine. I don't even think about Canada. Like, I just don't think about these places. And now all of a sudden, I don't know, you know, I'm amazed at how easily trained people are. 
Well, it's like we've all united around a story with regard to Ukraine and as opposed to COVID. Like in COVID, we, we don't have any coherent story. But with, with Ukraine, it's like the Western world is united around the story that you know, Russia is bad for invading and Ukrainians are good for resisting. Yeah. It just shows a bit. It just seems amazing to have trainable people in mind. Like, you could have just told me that the media could have just easily uh, said, okay, chocolate cake is the most important thing in the world. And we need to obsess about it constantly. And they could just bring on a sustained campaign about this. And suddenly people would have big banners of chocolate cake dressed, you know, draped over their uh, Facebook profiles. Um, you know, nobody could, how many people with all wrapped up and concerned about Ukraine could have even pointed Ukraine on a map prior to this? All right, no, nobody. 10%? Yeah, yeah, almost no one. No, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It just makes me, I, I see crap like this. I just want to like hide from it. And, I just, it's made me focus on work, if anything. If, if, if um, it has done anything, it just made me uh, take work more seriously and try to so get ahead on that dimension. You were talking about a life that works, and you, you mentioned it's one that's not being constantly sabotaged by uh, annoying occurrences, annoying, annoying people. And, and I'm wondering, given that that's almost... You know, impossible to to eliminate. Maybe we need a, an attitude or a temperament with regard to to the annoying that that enables us to kind of surf that rather yeah. than be taken down by it. Yeah, exactly. Like you ever heard of Shangzi? It's a Chinese philosopher. Shangzi, uh, I'm not sure. It's, uh, I mean, it's printed out. It's it's typed. It's spelled out different ways. It's C-H-A-N-G-T-Z-U, kind of like Lao Tzu. Um, okay. But the bottom line is he has a story or a parable about a butcher, right? <clears throat> and, and the attitude of the butcher was life is just chopping up meat. And sometimes, you know, the bones, some, some joints are hard to separate. And you have to work extra hard here and there. And but the grind continues, right? So you just sort of have to embrace the, the, the process of life and work through the hard bits and um, kind of endlessly and just take satisfaction in the job well done rather than think about this sort of uh, state of completion that will where you'll never be annoyed, uh, annoyed again. Right. I remember I had a girlfriend who, who told me something she'd learned from a previous boyfriend, how important it was to take satisfaction after you've performed a task. If you've mowed the lawn, take a minute and look at your good work. And if you've done the vacuuming, if you've done the cleaning, you know, take, take a minute and receive satisfaction from your good work. Yes. And that is definitely the attitude I'm trying to take. But, then, but it's still, it's still, you know, uh, you know, you have all these productivity to tools, mm -hmm. uh, Slack, do you use Slack? Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that, you get these that messages. Really knocks that, you off your knocks me off my concentration. Oh yeah. So uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm being savage to the chats. <laughs> yeah, when that thing comes in, it comes in at these odd times and odd places, and like today, like you know, I'm basically working today, chatting with somebody on Slack about work, and uh, I just find it so irritating and enraging uh, just to be disrupted in that way, and suddenly there's no blurring between the lines between on and off. You know? Yes. I used to be able to like count on a sustained period of off. Yeah. Now I'm just sort of on all the time at various degrees of intensity. And this just feels really annoying and, and, and unnatural and unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, I identify with that. But I'm thinking there's something more important than uh, what we we're talking about. And, and that is to have some kind of transcendent or overarching purpose to your life. So. Let's say you're you're getting up in the morning and your primary task is to look after, you know, a sick spouse or a sick child or you're participating in some cultural, religious or, or political cause or it's got to be some something that, that transcends the self. That That's what enables you, I think, to better navigate the frustrations and annoyances of life. I think we all need a cause beyond ourselves. I think we think we need that, yeah. Um, there's there's pitfalls in that, though. I think we oh, discussed the, these. Like, there are pitfalls in, in in everything. I just I just don't know how someone gets up in in the morning if they're not if they're not basically a happy person. It's not just a philosophy or a world outlook that, that transcends itself. It's it's a practical thing. So for me, I've got sponsees. So yeah. I've got various debilitating addictions that uh, really strangled my life and, and held back my life for, for decades. And so I feel a sense of kinship with people who share these addictions and who shared various levels of recovery from these addictions. It's, it's as though we've survived a plane crash together. And so I have a bond with them and we, we help, help each other. And so that's an important source of, of meaning in my life. And then uh, gathering with, with people at, at synagogue, that's another important source of, of meaning in my life. And then I, I have a, a worldview that I articulate on live streams like this, which is also an important uh, part of, of meaning in my life. This is more usually political, religious, cultural. Uh, but I think those are, those are some of the most important sources of, of meaning in my life beyond the self that, that give me energy as I go through my day. And help me to navigate the ups and downs of life with the with the help of modafinil and beef organ supplements. <laughs> Do you think these external inputs really help you, Luke, or psychosomatic? Oh yeah, we'll see and I got doing. a new one. I got oh, yeah, what's the new one? Bob and Brad's massage gun. So I often go on YouTube looking for, you know, physical therapy uh, tips. Um, like if I've got like I've got some piriformis syndrome that I've been dealing with the past few months, so I go on YouTube and so I look at a lot of videos by Bob and Brad, these physical therapists, and they recommend this massage gun, which I was just able to buy on Amazon. It's just like a hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. You can really dig in to to your muscles with this massage gun. 
and it's a lot better than just you know massaging yourself or you know paying someone else to massage you so i just got this massage gun and uh, i'm pretty excited are you showing it or is it i am i am right yeah. now bro oh, i gotta i gotta zoom i gotta take a look at this okay now i'm gonna uh, put it on my piriformis but i'm not gonna show that okay uh how often do you I, how often do you buy things on amazon like, how do you, often do I buy things on Amazon? Yeah, are you constantly I, doing this? Yeah, because I, 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 I do almost no shopping outside of Amazon. So I buy, yeah, most everything. But do you I find need. that you're buying things you really need or are you just buying trinkets? It varies. So I probably tried 100 different supplements for my chronic fatigue until mm -hmm. I finally landed on beef organ supplements. And that's that, that hit the spot. Huh? That hit the spot. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and like I got um, like an elevated pillow to, to elevate my head. And mm -hmm. so when I'm sleeping at night, I usually go through like three different, uh, three different pillows. Here, let me turn this off. Okay, let me grab my three different pillows. So I've got, I've got like an eight inch pillow. So often my nose kind of clogs up if I'm just lying horizontally. So if instead I lie back on this, uh, eight inch uh, pillow then then my nasal passages open up at, at night and then if i can't sleep on this eight inch pillow i get i think this is like uh five inches so i, I kind of will alternate back and forth between the eight inch and the the five inch pillow and then i've got a mattress that uh it's like four or five inches that it, that it curves up and uh so i kind of alternate at night between like the eight-inch pillow, the, the five-inch pillow, or just two pillows underneath my, two regular-sized pillows underneath my head. So I guess, you know, some people would look at that and go, oh, you know, that was a waste. I probably spent, you know, $35 on each of those pillows. Yeah, the wedge pillow. But <clears throat> but I, I often find my sinuses block up if I'm lying horizontally. So throw, throw a pillow in there, wedge pillow, and the sinuses open up and uh, and you know, get, get some better quality sleep, but then I become uncomfortable with it and I'll ch change it out in the middle of the night. So I don't know if that's just pure neuroticism or whatever it is, but I'm sure some people would think that that was a waste. Eight inches with a curve. No worries, mate. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have this, I have, I have no two people that seem to compulsively shop on Amazon. Like they get an idea, they'll, you know, some new activity, some new thing or other. They'll want to do it. They'll buy a bunch of stuff on Amazon to support this. And then they won't actually do it. They'll be on to something else that's even better, more effective. And they'll sort of buy all the equipment. <laughs> it just kind of stacks up, you know. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. That, I, I used to be, I used to be a compulsive. Go, go ahead. Well, I used to go to like, uh, you know, antique shops and flea markets and things like that just buy crap you know and i just finally just got rid of that habit like 10 years ago but that was this, this pack rat this this acquisitiveness that i used to have for things and thinking that things could actually do anything or had any intrinsic power well I, I after mean, a while it just gets do. i mean the inclined pillow or inclined mattress does open up my nostrils so I can breathe. It's a very uncomfortable feeling to not be able to breathe through your nose at night and to just have a pillow or a mattress that you can add. I mean, 
that's that's real to be able to breathe at night. Do you do the neti pot, bro? Uh, no, but, well, I do things like that. So do that twice twice a day. I use a nasal wash. Yeah, twice a day. Yeah, and you still have congestion at night. Yes. Oh boy, that is annoying. I know that. I know that. Well, I, you're, you're probably uh, you do, you're probably drinking too much milk, Luke. Uh, almond milk. So you don't you don't eat dairy. You don't uh, occasionally, dairy. I'll have real milk, but most of the time, I just have uh, almond okay. milk. But, okay, I think we're digre- I think we're digressing a little bit too much. Anyway. Well, I, I do think there are things that can have a dramatic difference to the quality of your life. For example, the beef organ supplements. My life was hobbled prior to them, and uh, I just feel so much stronger w- without them. Like I can. I can do my push-ups. I'm, I'm walking or riding my bike ten miles a day. Like, uh, feel so much stronger. And the only variable that changed was the were the beef organ supplements. Yeah, I'm not saying there's no value. I, I'm just saying there's like a. I don't know. I don't know why uh, Amazon just just rubs me the wrong way, but it does. Like you know, I once I, w- I went back east and like. Uh, um, to visit my mother and she lives near this kind of this in Providence, Rhode Island. It's this kind of podunk city. And, you know, to kill time, I went into this, this Chinese restaurant, right. And this Chinese restaurant had like a little mini bar set up and by mini bar, it's like a bed is like a bar with like four stools. And there were these just two huge women sitting at the bar and they were just both shopping on Amazon on an iPad, you know, yeah. while drinking. <laughs> and just the whole scene was just so disgusting to me. You know, it, it just saved, it just sent like waves of nausea throughout my body. And I, I just was never able to look at Amazon the same way. Yeah, I think, I think we all tend to be repelled by other people's addictions. So if you're using food or shopping or alcohol or, or drugs to change your state, to change your mood, then you've you've probably got an, an addiction going on, and I think yeah, we we usually tend to be repelled and nauseated by other people's addictions. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just wonder why. Okay, so you know, and then I would tell like I would tell this story to my mother, and I'd explain to her my disgust or something, and her attitude is like, "Me, it's the problem is me, and I'm just being judgmental." You know, this is a this is the the moral failing of our age. Like one should not be judgmental, and you know what's the difference between judgmental and disgust, right? You see something, you're disgusted by it, you feel negative feelings, right? You're you're just going to outlaw the whole class of feelings because they're just other people find them unpleasant. I right that that's a good point. So what is the difference between? an instinctive reaction of disgust and being judgmental. So I guess an instinct uh, of disgust is something that just happens to us spontaneously. Uh, I think we refer to people as judgmental when they're pronouncing on things that uh, start to get on our nerves. So one's an instinct and one's uh, uh, an ongoing conversational pattern that we find annoying. Right. And if I were with my friends and they thought differently, Right, I would express this same sentiment, and A, would they laugh about it? But B, they would have their own feelings about it, and then they, we would just riff on it, right? Mm-hmm. And that whole experience would be really fun. Yeah, and it, it would be sort of like a creative writing 
uh, exercise, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, that's how you knew your friends are, Luke. They're disgusted by the same things that you are. Yes. <laughs> it's a friend-enemy distinction, Luke. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, so half Galician's going nuts in the chat, and I don't know what he's talking should, should we engage with him? Or why don't we bring him on, bro? Um, I've wanted to, to bring him on for years, but I've never been able to, to bring him on. So, so what personality flaws uh, must have you have to, to join yeah. the Luke Ford show as a, as a guest, <laughs> as a guest contributor? <laughs> do you have to have some sort of, which defects do you have? <laughs> well, I was just listening to that Jimmy Carr interview with Jordan Peterson. And yeah. and he was making the point that uh, comedians don't just uh, create a performance, that they, they build an audience, right? So there's a particular type of person who's attracted to a comic like Jimmy Carr. And I mm -hmm. think the same is, is true for live streamers, that, that this isn't some kind of abstract performance, but we're talking to that group of friends that uh, you were just referring to. Uh, I think, generally speaking, I'm talking to people who generally speaking share my disgust reactions yeah so so half galician's i want to screenshot this right he's making a pledge that he's going to appear on the show this year so we don't know when but we should take this as a binding contract <laughs> yeah because i think you two need to do some talking bro yes we need to work some things through <laughs> exactly exactly Ah. Uh, all right. Well, I didn't really have much, Luke. I just felt. Uh, okay. Blessings. I got. I got to wrap it up and start doing some big boy stuff. Okay. Take All care, right. Elliot. Good to talk All right, to peace. you. Man. All right. Bye. 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 Blessings. Okay. Back to this terrific article in the Atlantic about why we can't uh, develop a coherent story for COVID. Although the pandemic has lacked a coherent narrative, people seem to have an easier time finding a place for it in the story of their own life. So one of the nice things about uh, the gap between individual stories and reality is that people are going to wrestle it down to something more manageable over time. So many people have discovered passions from their downtime during the pandemic. The pandemic's unexpectedly steered them toward a more purposeful life. It's been a catalyst for some people, leaving them to, to make a move in a direction sooner than they expected. Then for other people, they've experienced the pandemic as a pause, as a reset, or just a temporary digression in the story of their life. The one, one dominant narrative among individuals with regard to pandemic is that of interruption. It's like watching a movie at a theater, and someone in front of you gets up and starts having an argument with his partner on his cell phone. And, and the virus is that loud, argumentative guy. We're impatient and angry with it because it's disrupting what we think is our real story. We've been deprived of the life story that we wanted to be living. And this causes a stress because it implies a loss of authorship over our own personal narrative. So those who treat the pandemic as an opportunity to grow tend to have lower levels of anxiety and depression. So the more redemptive arcs you can notice in your life, the happier you will be. Okay, let's... Uh... Have a look. What else have we got here? Michael Beckley. means the government has to resort towards more draconian measures on the behavior of Chinese citizens um, instead. Um, there, was, there was one other question there that I'm sorry that um, I didn't catch. So maybe you can remind me what it was. I think you answered all of them. So the zero policy, the, um, uh, the TFP question. 
learned is not going to, I don't think it's going to lead to a big word with, you know, the largest famine in history. And a lot of that is just that things have gotten very expensive for average Chinese in, in cities. Chinese women also are increasingly choosing to prioritize their careers rather than, um, you know, lock themselves down in, in a marriage and start having children. And, and simply the fact that things like housing have gotten so expensive mean that Chinese families just feel they can't afford to have as many children as maybe they otherwise would have. So there's a whole bunch of different pressures that aren't necessarily unique to China, but also just mean that changing the policy and allowing people to have more children is not going to, I don't think it's going to lead to a big surge in the birth rate. Um, and we're already seeing that. And even if it did, it wouldn't really kick in until 18 years. And by then, it's just not going to make up for the avalanche of population decline that China has already set itself up for. Perfect. So the next question from Avi Shakar. Uh, Avi. Of all of that, just given its rapid economic growth over the last 40 years. But what, what the theories anyway say is that, but then when you get to this point where you need to transition from just labor intensive manufacturing and industrial output to a more ideas driven economy, more services driven economy, their autocracies may have a disadvantage because when people, when everyday citizens know that uh, are, are looking to the state for economic direction, when they know that um, if they start a business, it might just be expropriated by the state and, and, and bulldozed at any given point, um, when they know that they're intellectual. So this is Michael Beckley. He's got a new book coming out on China this year, and he's talking about problems in China. Property, if they can come up with some new invention, might be taken away from them um, and, and given back to the state or redistributed. That, that just dulls the incentives for things like entrepreneurship and innovation. Now, I think the new thing that we Okay, I want to talk about books I've been reading lately. So this book I've read on college football is called uh, Scoreboard Baby by, by Ken Armstrong. So Scoreboard Baby, a story of college football crime and complicity. It's about the year 2000 Washington Huskies football team, which only had one loss, ended up, I think, number two in the country. But... Something like half the team had, had been been charged with a crime. Just unbelievable rates of uh, social dysfunction. So whether we're talking about Oklahoma in the 1970s and 80s under Barry Switzer, Miami in the 1980s and early 90s under, or Miami in the 1980s under Jimmy Johnson, early 90s under Dennis Erickson, Nebraska in the mid-1990s under Tom Osborne, or won championships on the field while players found trouble off it. So at least two dozen players on Washington's 2000 football team were arrested or charged with some crime while at University of Washington. Now, we all know that, that the best college football teams have the highest you know, rate of, of criminals and, and rapists and thugs, all right? It's not a surprise, but to just see the details of what these people do and get away with. So the star linebacker, uh, Kenny Farms on this team shot, shot a drug dealer in the midst of a robbery, but he was still allowed to play football. The star receiver, a tight end, he uh, raped a girl, like a girl who was a virgin, and he damaged her vaginally and anally. When you just see the damage that these, these players do, this, this tight end, he went on to play about seven years in the NFL, but he had just countless DUIs, just countless problems with the law, just wrecking the lives of all sorts of innocent people and uh, getting away with it. So you had two dozen players on Washington's 2000 football team arrested or charged with a crime, but rarely did they miss playing time. 
this is the story of college football. Some players do serious damage. Some players get used up. A city looks away. The game goes on. Sometimes a school cracks down, but uh, when they have a coach or an athletic director who cracks down, then they tend to lose a lot of games. So Tom Osborne, his, his teams just ran wild. After he retired, he was elected three times to Congress as a Republican congressman, got more than 80% of the vote because he won three national championships. Now, there are people who are horrified about how his star players like Lawrence Phillips dragged his ex-girlfriend down three flights of stairs by a hair and how Osborne then reinstated Phillips after a six-game suspension. Other members of Nebraska's 1995 championship team played despite being convicted of sexual assault or after firing uh, two bullets into an occupied car or while awaiting trial for attempted second-degree murder. So the book's called Scoreboard Baby. So it talks about a college football program that sacrifices its players' long-term well-being and its community's dignity for the sake of winning, looks the other way when stars are accused of violent crimes that skirts ethics off the field while pursuing perfection on it. That sounds bad, but boring. What investigative reporter Ken Armstrong and Nick Perry have done in this book, Scoreboard Baby, is lay out in hard-boiled style and with the verve only real storytelling can supply exactly whose lives were mangled in the course of the University of Washington's historic 2000 season. Their idiosyncratic characters and plots ultimately indict a vast impersonal system that has produced dozens of such teams. Huskies didn't break new ground here, but in so comprehensively detailing them, the authors did. There's no more outrageous or typical figure than the head coach Rick Neuheisel, who refused to discipline or even substantially bench the linebacker Jeremiah Farms, who he knew was in trouble with the law, or the superstar tight end Jeremy Stevens, who apparently raped a sorority girl who was uh, a virgin, damaged her vaginally and anally. New Heisel's disciplinary boundaries were the faded yellow dashes that divide a country two lane. The markers a suggestion more than anything else. His staff lacked the ability to manage a bipolar player. So there are individual victims in each story, but on a systemic level, there are no innocents. Boosters demand wins. A diverse city backs a successful team even a hyper-educated latte liberal Seattle. Academic authorities allow players to graduate with large chunks of credits in gut courses. So a favorite course for University of Washington players was Swahili. Some of them took 30 credits, 30 unit credits, taking Swahili courses because I guess Swahili isn't a written language and they just learned a few phrases. And the Swahili instructor was happy to sign off on generous marks for football players who didn't show up to classes. So that to maintain a 2.0 or above to stay eligible to play. And many of them only managed to do this by going to all these Swahili classes. The athletic department uh, published a profile of Farms who, who was involved in a domestic dispute over his extramarital affair and they entitled it Putting Family First. We've got these sports sections run by absurd character buttressing portraits of antisocial men and children. Prosecutors go easy on stars because they know the jurors will as well. What heroes the book has do not subvert the system. They merely carve some small consolation within it. So this is the book Scoreboard Baby by Ken Armstrong and Nick Perry, best book I've read on college football. So when Rick Neuheisel coached the University of Colorado, he caught a fake punt against Oregon in the 1996 Cotton Bowl, and his team was ahead by 30 points. Two years later, after Colorado beat the Ducks in the Aloha Bowl, 
The Oregon coach, Mike Bellotti, said the better team lost. Neuheisel replied, scoreboard, baby. That com comment and the insouciant way Neuheisel delivered it is a perfect two-word summation of big-time college sports. All that matters is what's on the scoreboard. Nothing else counts. So whether a college football team can win without recruiting criminals is a question that goes largely unexplored in this book. Grew out of a 2008 series in the Seattle Times. Does it matter to fans that the athletes they cheer for on Saturday afternoons are committing rape and armed robbery, beating their wives and girlfriends, and driving drunk at high rates of speed during the rest of the week? The answer clearly is it doesn't matter to most fans as long as the team is winning. And tight end Jeremy Stevens, University of Washington had no good receivers on the team aside from him. So if they were going to win, it depended on him staying eligible. So yeah, he was out there raping people, but uh, he didn't lose any playing time. So when he was arrested on suspicion of rape before the season, questions asked by fans and in the media about whether he would play or not and how the case would affect the team's chances. When Curtis Williams, a player with a long history of violent behavior toward women and other crimes, was paralyzed from the neck down after a vicious hit against Stanford, he was treated as a fallen hero, an inspirational figure whose past was ignored. So plenty of institutions deserve shame, the university, the legal system, and the media. The University of Washington routinely admitted athletes who are educationally unfit to attend school. whose previous crimes make them a danger to other students. Stevens was charged with felony assault after his senior year of high school. And uh, the Washington coach and his top two assistants wrote letters to the judge on his behalf. We believe in Jeremy. The uh, legal system routinely gave uh, breaks to star athletes, so... Interesting college football. Check out this book, Scoreboard Baby by Ken Armstrong and Nick Perry. All right, that's it. Bye-bye.